Hey, good to see everyone tonight. And I'm so happy that you're here. We are going to be reading from um, three different sections of scripture tonight. Um, it's all in your notes if you don't want to try to follow, um, you know, in your, in your Bible. It's on your notes and it'll be up on the screen. We're going to begin in Exodus 2. We're going to move from there to Hebrews 11. And uh, then we'll finish up in the book of Acts. You say, man, that's, that sounds like you got a, a message you want to say and you're just looking for some verses to fit. But um, actually, uh, all of this is about the life of Moses and, and it's going to put some things in perspective. Last week, we uh, took a little bit of time. I know we talked about it the first week that I did by video, but last week we spent probably 15 minutes talking about the dynamic um, of the name of our series, that this is the life of Moses, but it's not just the life of Moses. It's not a collection of uh, biographical data, <coughs> excuse me, or chronological entries. It's a man's journey to discover God's hand, to see what God does, and to discover God's heart, to see why he does it. And I, I want to say just one more time, I encourage you, if you didn't hear last week, um, go back online and listen, even if you just listen to the first 10 or 15 minutes introduction. It is so important because I think where we are right now, and it's a, it's a most difficult place, but um, God is, I think as his priority from, from our perspective, and boy, how do you, how do you describe the mind of God? How do, you, how do you categorize God's thought? But, but I think from our perspective, what God is doing right now in the world is moving in a way that is somewhat unpleasant to us and somewhat new to us because our God is an awesome God and we're used to him moving every obstacle out of our way. And even though we know he is doing that, there's a lot of waiting going on right now. There's a lot of what ifs going on right now. And it's not because he's lost power. It's because I think, if I'm, if I'm interpreting it correctly, I think what we're dealing with is God is doing something significant. And I think he's doing something significant in the world that the world doesn't have a clue yet. I'm not even sure that the church does. But I think he's also doing something significant in our hearts. And um, <clears throat> what he's doing is showing us his heart as he prepares to show us his hand. Now, I really do believe that. I, I'm not looking for an excuse for hard times. I'm not looking to be God's apologist to say, well, this is why he's doing it this way or that way. I, who can know the mind of God? And, and God needs no defense from somebody like me. But what I do think is happening is I think for those of us that will, that will hold steady, God is doing some deep work preparing us to be able to hold a very full cup later. Paul put it this way to the Corinthian church. He said, now when all is said and done, there remains these three things. And by the way, 1 Corinthians was written to deal with these are your problems. This is what you're dealing with. This is what you're asking me about. You're telling me that Christianity is not functioning. Now let me deal with these problems. And part of the explanation that Paul dealt with 
was we've got to understand the, the heart of God, not just the hand of God. <coughs> they had an abundance of gifts. They had an abundance of miracles. But God said, you've got to understand what's at the core of all of this, the heart of God. And this is what he said. There now abides, and, and th that's beautiful King James flowery English. But what in our vernacular it would say is this. When you come to the end of the day, this is what you've got to deal with. Faith hope, and love. And it's not some flowery poetic thing that we put over the fireplace. I mean, that's good. But he says to the Corinthians, you've got to understand as you work through all of these problems and as you try to unscramble scrambled eggs, as you try to figure out what's what, there are three ways we relate to God. One is, uh, is faith and uh, the other is hope and the other is love. I want to preach about that, not this Sunday, but probably the next Sunday. I, I think it is desperate that we as Christians wrap our arms around the idea. And, and we've talked about that before. We've illustrated it by the three Hebrew children. Uh, you know, we believe God uh, can and we believe that God will, but even if he doesn't. But I, I want to take it and go a little deeper with it, not just, hey, love God even when you don't understand. There is a world that operates, it pivots on those things, faith, hope, and love. So I want us to talk about that. Uh, and if you could take the first 15 minutes of last week's lesson, I, I, I went into a little more detail and I believe that explains what God is doing. We, we talked about in lesson one, God responding to the cry of our hearts. What happens when a man, woman, boy, or girl calls out to God, okay? Um, then last week we talked about, um, basically the birth of Moses. We talked about the culture he was born into, the incredible faith of his mother and father, um, and even of his brother and uh, older brother and older sister. Uh, today I want to talk about finding your burning bush. Now let me explain what I mean by finding your burning bush. You, this is probably, um, uh, one of the three most familiar uh, vignettes in Moses' life, the, the burning bush. Um, I think probably you have studied, and not every scholar agrees on this, but a good number of scholars agree that it was not uncommon to see a bush explode into flame. There were bushes that were um, the closest thing we would be accustomed to is maybe a eucalyptus tree or something where there's all of this oil. And scholars say that it was not uncommon. I mean, it didn't happen every day, but it was not uncommon to see a bush just spontaneously break out into flame because of the intense heat. You say, oh, I can't believe that will happen. Let me tell you something. Those of you that have been in my office, you remember that we had a lake and 7,423 bazillion trees uh, over there. And when we cut those trees down to get ready to fill in the lake, an amazing thing happened. Every day, my office, the window was open. I just enjoyed the view. Um, the day they cut those trees down, the next afternoon, uh, I got a call that my office was on fire. And uh, I didn't know what had happened. To make a long story short, I had a couple of, um, what do you call them, uh, crystal, you know, things that are made of crystal? Crystal things, okay. Um, on my desk, you know, paperweights is what they were. 
And the light was coming through my window in a way it had not been allowed to come through my window before, ever. And it hit those crystals that were on my desk and set a stack of papers on fire on my desk. Now, nothing happened except smoke. I, and I tried to tell people it was the glory of God, but we figured out it was, it was, it was the light refracting. Um, I, I, I say on fire, I mean, it, they were smoking, they were, they were burning. It wasn't a big flame, but it was, it was smoking. So no, when you think of the incredible heat of the desert and you think of the conditions being just right, it's not unthinkable that a bush would burst into flame. But what caused Moses to pull aside and go see, now for 40 years, you know he had seen that more than once, but he noticed something was happening. This, this bush was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. Um, and sometimes we need to understand that God will use very common things and put just a touch of the supernatural in it that has enough draw to make us turn aside. And, that, and you remember, we've talked about this. That's when God began to speak to Moses, when he saw that he turned aside. God didn't need a burning bush, but sometimes God will put things together in our life. And, and you need to hear me on this. It seems common. It seems ordinary. In fact, some of the greatest moves of God in your life will be out of the moments of doldrums. But there's just enough of a supernatural touch on it that you realize God is doing something. That's what happened with Moses. When we talk about finding your burning bush, we're talking about finding God's purpose for your life. You've heard me when I preached on the call of God and, and knowing the will of God. Um, I grew up in a culture, and if you were, you know, Pentecostal, probably if you were, you know, from a Southern Baptist background, you grew up in this culture too, this idea of the call of God. You know, I was going along life, everything's fine, and I received this call. And um, as I was growing up, that was kind of reserved for preachers and preachers' wives, maybe, uh, you know, or, uh, or, you know, people that went into ministry. I don't, I don't mean to be male or female, but uh, I grew up in a, if you received a call, you were going to preach. Please allow me, I'm, I've got a reason why I'm going down this little path here. That's why for probably 30 years, there were far more men and women that went to our Bible colleges that never went into pastoral ministry. It wasn't because they missed the call of God. It was because we presented this thing, if you're called, you're called to preach. But the scripture teaches, going back to that very book in, in, uh, of Corinthians, Everyone has a calling. Everyone has a purpose. And if God has designated you to work at, uh, you know, an accounting office, if that's where God has placed you, that call is just as real as a call to pastoral ministry or anything else. And we need to restore that. We need to get that back in the hearts of our children that it's not just a select few uh, that receive a call. We all have a call. Every one of us has a burning bush. Now we may never preach uh, a day in our lives. We may never lead worship a day in our lives, but we have this, we have this call. Um, and it's up to us. I'm sorry. Uh, let's see what I can do here. 
rebuke the devil there. Um, or, or airplane mode, either one will work. Um, we, we, we need to understand that uh, our life reaches its fulfillment to the degree that we fulfill the call of God on our lives. When we get to the judgment seat of Christ, which is the judgment of believers, that's not a judgment for the lost. It's not a judgment for evil. It's a place of reward for us, the judgment seat of Christ. And when I stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, I will not be compared to the Apostle Paul. Thank God, I will not be compared to Paul. And Justin's one of my closest friends, but I will not be compared to Justin because the will of God for my life has nothing to do with what Paul does. It has nothing to do with what Justin does. The, the basis of my judgment, and it's, it's fivefold, there's five things that, that God brings to the table. And every one of those five things revolve around one question. How closely did I fulfill God's plan for my life? Not what I did, not even how much I did. We're going to find out we're in an upside down kingdom. The first shall be last, the last shall be first. And what we're going to find out is that some of the least in the kingdom might be people that did the most quantitatively. But the greatest in the kingdom might be those that had a very narrow focus and a very narrow call, but they did what they were called to do. So uh, that's what I'm talking about when I say finding your burning bush. Every one of us has a call. You say, well, pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm almost as old as you are. It's too late now. Well, you got to understand when Moses found his burning bush, he, he was about 15 years older than I am now. Uh, it's not a matter of time. It's a matter of timing. And it's a matter of fulfilling the call of God. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Um, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, uh, where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and to fill the troughs, to water their father's flock. Now I'm gonna interrupt my scripture reading about three times to give you a little historical background. I'm sorry, can you hear me okay? We're okay? And uh, somebody said to me one time when I was preaching in the life of Moses, they said, what, what does this mean, a priest of Midian? What was he a priest of? He must have been a pagan priest because out in the wilderness, those were all the ites and they were all evil. Um, we need, to, we need to address our, our, um, our study of mankind a little bit when we, if we believe, and, and I do, I think it's, un, I, I think it's uh, absolutely true, we don't have all the answers, but I believe that we are the created highlight of God's work on those six days. 
I believe that mankind began with the knowledge of God and then gradually fell away from that knowledge of God. Anthropologists, historians, even Christian ones tell you this. Mankind had no religion, but as he grew, he developed monotheism and he began to understand God a little bit through Moses and why, and, and it was thousands upon thousands of years before man evolved to the point of monotheism. Uh, but I want to tell you something, the exact opposite is true. Man didn't grow into a belief in God. Man walked away from a belief in God that was near perfect. And um, we, we, we're not, mankind is not on a journey to Eden. Mankind has fallen from Eden. And I believe with all of my heart, when you read, I don't have time to go into all the reasons why, but um, when you read about Jethro being a priest of Midian and you read about men um, uh, that, um, uh, uh, you know, seem to have this, this uh, you know, like Melchizedek, all of this amazing stuff. Where did it come from? I believe, loved ones, that as man left Eden and as man fell deeper into his sins, God placed priests, God placed systems, God placed people throughout the inhabited world as signposts reminding them of their destiny, reminding them of their life and their purpose, reminding them of creation. For instance, the flood, um, whether you read the Bible or you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, every culture, every ancient culture has the story of the flood. Now, it may be interpreted by one culture differently than we interpret it, but I'm saying we have a common, very heavy theological background. Man has not developed his theology. Man has lost most of it. And then by the time we get to Moses and the Pentateuch, God says, I'm going to take what Jethro was teaching. I'm going to take what Melchizedek was teaching, and I'm going to put it in the framework for a nation to live out. So that's what this idea of the priest of Midian was, was about. Um, da, 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 da. Priest of Midian had seven daughters and they came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered the flock. I don't know what the odds were, but Moses was of sufficient uh, manhood. I'm guessing he probably looked like Marshall Dillon. And um, he, I, I'm kidding. But he was, he was of sufficient training, presence, and stature that whatever needed to be done to get these men away from these women and, and let the women water their flocks, Moses was able to do it. Um, when the girls returned to their father, to Reuel or Jethro, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? He was used to them having trouble of one sort or another. And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? He asked his daughters. Now he was interested for two reasons. He wanted to show hospitality. And here's a man with seven daughters. Uh, we, 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 we need seven husbands. I need some grandchildren. So here's number one. Where is he? Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. So Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Uh, Gershom meant stranger or foreigner. 
Um, during that long period, the king of Egypt died, the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now we knew that from the first lesson. We knew that that was going on in the heart of God. <clears throat> and I think this is a good time for me to say this. For those of you guys that are listening online or when you listen, we, we, are, we are having a flood part two right now. So I apologize for the, for the noise I'm having to talk over. But um, what, what we've got is whenever we're crying out and it seems like God's doing nothing, God says, I'm listening, I'm, I'm hearing, I'm acting, I'm doing something. And right at our lowest moment, God's raising up a Moses somewhere uh, or, or God's a rearranging circumstances. And I know that can be a terribly trite sounding thing to say when you can't see Moses, but that's what was happening. Now let's go to Acts. At that time, this is Stephen's sermon, at that time Moses was born and he was no ordinary child. Remember we talked about this last week. He had a special destiny and it was evident to the, to the family. For three months he was cared for by his family and when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Here's why I want to interrupt myself the second time. Um, we read the Bible, especially the King James Version, <coughs> and the indicator is that Moses, um, the language sounds like Moses might have even had a speech impediment of some kind. Um, somebody said, well, he just was probably using that as an excuse. Well, the Lord saw enough validity to his concern that he said, I'll send your brother Aaron to speak for you. So there was something about his speech. Um, but here it says he was powerful in speech and action. Let me say, I think there are two probable explanations for that contradiction. Someone can be powerful in speech and not be a good speaker. What powerful in, in speech meant is that his words carried weight. Now, I mean, he could have, he could have uh, stuttered as bad as Mel Tillis, but when he got his sentence out, it carried the authority of action. It, it may have just meant that when Moses spoke, people listened. It may, have, it may have meant that Moses had authority and uh, Pharaoh honored his authority. You gotta remember he commanded the Egyptian army in at least two wars. And um, later when he would lead the people of God, when he spoke, uh, you, you, we'll find out in this account the amazing times when God said, I'm gonna do this. And Moses spoke and God said, all right, we'll do it this way. Um, I, 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 it could simply mean that Moses, the, the, the Exodus account meant that he was not a good speaker, but what Stephen was saying is when he spoke, it happened. When he spoke, people paid attention. That could be what it meant. Um, it, could, it could mean that Moses' strength was not speaking off the cuff or speaking on the fly. It, it could be that Moses, um, you know, I've been educated in the University of Sun. If I have time 
to think out what I want to say and present it logically, but you're sending me into the presence of Pharaoh and I don't know what he's going to say. And that's a frightening thing. That's why Jesus said to the disciples uh, in the New Testament, he said, when you are brought before uh, uh, governments and you are brought before authorities, he said, don't get upset wondering what you're going to say because the Holy Spirit will be with you and he will help you. And it could be that that's the kind of thing that God was doing for, for Moses. I didn't say this last week and I, I wish I had, um, I, I was mad at myself for not saying it, but um, I, I, you know, no, nobody's parents are perfect and my parents were not perfect. But um, there, there, were, there was something I wanted to say last week. I think the greatest strength of my parents, and I'm not gonna get off, run a rabbit trail back to last week, but I think the, the greatest strength of my parents was what I'd just call unconditional love. Um, they weren't perfect, and if they were perfect, their children would have, we have enough imperfections, we would have driven them to imperfection. But there was never a moment in my life, uh, now there's a moment, there, there was a moment, I mean there were plenty of moments when I thought I am in deep, deep trouble. Uh, I remember what Adrian Rogers used to say, David, somebody asked his little boy one time, he says, uh, he said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And his dad had just punished him. He shook his head and said, alive, just alive. Um, I mean, there were moments like that, but I, there was never a moment when I doubted my parents' love for me, uh, that they would do whatever they needed to do for me. It was unconditional love. Um, but I, I, I was thinking about my dad. My dad... Um, was a guy that was just paralyzed at the thought of public speaking, but he was one of the best storytellers I ever heard. And my dad was what I think Moses was. The idea of I've got to lead this and take on this and I've got to be the spokesman for this terrified him. But if you could let him get in his element, he, he was a master. He was an absolute master. Um, and I noticed my dad as a leader in the church all the years I was growing up, my dad never, unless it was just he absolutely had to, my dad never took the lead on dealing with an issue, uh, you know, for the past or any, he was always supportive and he was there, but he never took a lead. But when a statement needed to be made, my dad, who was terrified of speaking in front of a crowd, give him time to process what he wanted to say and he would go off in a 15 minute presentation without notes and it was the best I'd ever heard in my life. Am I, am I making sense? It's not a contradiction. Stephen wasn't saying, oh, he was a good speaker, he was lying. And Exodus isn't wrong. We probably have a man that temperamentally defaulted to the background and did what needed to be done, but he didn't have to have the limelight to do it, okay? Second interruption over. Um, when Moses was 40 years old, we're, we're at verse 23, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Verse 25, so important. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. Okay, third interruption. When you feel that you have an idea of your mission, I can almost guarantee that you will experience misunderstanding and misrepresentation. 
Um, you will be misunderstood in your attempt to accomplish something, and there will be meaning ascribed to your actions that is absolutely untrue. People will say, oh, this is why he said that, or this is why she did that. In other words, they're saying this is what motivated them to do that, and they couldn't be further from the truth if they tried. That's, that's the trap that every man and woman of God has to walk through when they decide they're going to be used of God. They are going to be misunderstood, and as a result of being misunderstood, they're going to be misrepresented. Okay? Interruption over. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. That brings us to lesson number three. Regardless of what God is doing through you, to you, with you, for you, you are going to have to deal with the issue of finding my bush, finding my burning bush. Um, and I want us to see three things. I want us to see Moses as royalty. I want us to see Moses as the instrument of God. And then I want to see Moses as failure. Now, next week we begin the, the, the conflict with the gods of Egypt. As royalty, and this, is, this part's primarily review, um, Moses was educated as Egyptian royalty. Oh, you want me to use this? Moses was educated as Egyptian royalty at the University of the Sun. We talked about that last week. According to Josephus, he was being groomed as the next pharaoh. That's possible. And... Um, um, the, the, the law of ascension to the throne in Egypt was not just a matter of the son of Pharaoh took over. Uh, they had women that were, uh, that were Pharaohs. There were at least twice when they had dual uh, Pharaohs, uh, one over the northern part, one over the, over the southern part. It wasn't a matter of just your Pharaoh's son, you become the next Pharaoh. That's the way it operated, I would guess, probably 75% of the time. But there were political machines that had to be operated. There, were, there was one time two sisters, uh, daughters of Pharaoh, shared the throne for a while. And some have, we don't have an exact date for Moses, some have said, well, maybe that's why it was important he was the, the um, son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was the son of one of those daughters. We don't know. We, we, can, make, uh, we can make an interesting case for about three identities of the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And, and uh, we're just not sure because we don't have all the information. But according to Josephus, Moses was being groomed as the next Pharaoh. Uh, he had learned the language of hieroglyphics, the Egyptian spoken language, sciences, medicines, astronomy, chemistry, law, philosophy, and theology. Um, he would have studied the arts and literature as well as Egyptian military disciplines. I mean, this guy, uh, uh, from, from a secular level, uh, he didn't know everything, but he had an education that exposed him to virtually everything, okay? 
Um, and then I mentioned that about mighty in words and deeds, probably referred to his military career and that he carried an ability to greatly influence others. That was Moses' royalty, and that's what he knew for 40 years. Now we see Moses as the instrument of God. At the end of that 40 years, God has been grooming him. Moses was being led by God and didn't even know it. It says that it entered into the heart of Moses to visit his people. And um, uh, several translations put it this way. God put it in Moses' heart to visit his people. So God was leading Moses, and Moses may not have even known it. He killed the Egyptian for mistreating a Hebrew. And I want to say this. We just need to remember this, especially in the difficult times in which we're living. Um, this is not a blanket statement. This is just a blanket observation. And whatever God leads us to do, we need to remember this. It is possible that our remedy for injustice can be just as bad as the sin we are avenging unless we follow God's way. Whatever we're trying to set right, and, and there are so many things in our country that need to be set right, sins from the past, and we could go on and on and on and on, and every one of those things need to be set right. Every, every person that's been wrong needs to be restored. All of that is true. But I, and, and, I, and every time I say this, I get kicked in the head a couple of times, but I want to say it one more time with the hope that not many people will watch tonight. Um, that's, a, that's a joke. You can laugh. Um, but we need to understand if we're not careful in, a, in our desire to make things right, we'll make things worse because we're not doing it the right way. And that's what Moses walked right into. He walked right into that trap. And um, James 1.20 is the basis for that because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So it's evident. Now, we know the story of Moses. We look back. We look back and, and, um, and, and say, well, this is what God was doing, you know. You know what it's like to, to have watched a TV series. You know, you watched all eight seasons. And then when you watch it with somebody who's seeing it for the first time, you've got all of this backstory and they're just amazed. They say, when did, when did I miss that? Did, when I went out to make a sandwich, did I miss that? And you know, you say, no, no, I watched it 20 years ago. Well, we have the ability of looking back from the lens of Christianity and we know what Moses did and we know how Moses used him. But what I want to just impress upon you just very quickly, uh, even if momentarily, I want you to understand that Moses didn't begin to be used by God when he walked into the courts of Pharaoh. God had chosen him and God was setting him up for service before Moses even knew what was going on. Uh, but we have to end tonight's lesson on a down note to understand the mysterious ways of God. We've talked about him as royalty. We've talked about him as an instrument of God. But the third thing I want us to see is Moses as a failure. Um, Moses spent arguably the best years of his life dealing with failure. Now, now birth to 40, those are the strongest years of your life. That's the most energetic years. That's the you know, you're like the Energizer buddy, uh, Bunny. 
But 40 to 80, those are the years where your wisdom should be blossoming. And you might not be able to do everything quite like you used to do it, but you don't need to because you've learned a better way to do it, you know. But think of Moses' most productive years, the 40 to 80, and then you stop and realize that every day he wakes up to go out and take care of the sheep, he's dealing with the shadow of failure. He looks into the eyes of his wife that he loves with all of his heart, and I wonder how many mornings he said, Zipporah, I wish you could have known me when. I wish you could have known me under these circumstances. I, I wish you could know the way it used to be. And probably in his mind, you've married a guy on the run and who has become a failure. My life is nothing. All the potential I had is lost. And he navigates those waters for 40 years, not understanding that God was, was marinating his life to be able to be used in an incredible, incredible way. So after his deep secret was exposed that he had killed the Egyptian, Moses fled into the deep desert where he intended to live out his life in solitude. I took something out of one of my journals that uh, I, I want to read to you, and I've, I've taken out some details because, <clears throat> um, you know, was it Dragnet? They said the names have been changed to protect the, the innocent. Sometimes you got to take names out and protect the guilty and the innocent. Um, but this was, this was from my journal. Uh, this was my pastor speaking to me when I was a teenager. And I told him that I felt the call of God on my life. And um, my, my pastor was just an old country woodworker, um, the most unassuming man you'd ever want to meet. Um, quiet, humble would never stand out in a crowd. But every now and then, the hand of God would come upon him. I'm talking about his relationship with me. And he would either come sit by me or stand by me. And I, I could tell this, in retrospect, I could tell when the anointing was upon him because he'd put his hand on my shoulder. And he was about to tell me something that was a treasure. And uh, he was, I've, I've never heard him say anything bad about anybody else. So don't interpret this as gossip. We were at a, meeting of churches coming together and he sat down by me and put his hand on my shoulder kind of leaned over to me he said brother steve i want you to look at that brother and he i, I knew who he was talking about and this is what my pastor said personally i've known of no one with a greater gift and a greater anointing than him he had told me that before and he told me that later he said of all the men and women that I've ever met, nobody had a greater gifting and nobody had a greater anointing than, than this fellow. He is a good man. And, and this, this was my, my pastor was just profound. It, this didn't sound like him. He said, he is a good man. He said, maybe even a great man. But when he fell a few years ago, he never let God restore him. Now, to make a long story short, he was not a hypocrite. He did not have some hidden sin that he, that he tried to get around. He made some, uh, a couple of mistakes that were terminal at that point. He was going to lose his credentials, and he needed to just go through the process, but he didn't. He said when he fell, he went into self-imposed exile, 
And though he teaches a well-attended Sunday school class in one of our largest churches, and he did, he taught a Sunday school class that was larger than most of the other churches in the section. He said he is barely a shadow of what he once was. He gave up on his true calling, thinking his sin was too great. He said, I was his pastor back then. Since you were a baby, I've tried to get him to pick himself up and start again. The hand of God is still upon him. But like Moses, he continues to punish himself in the desert. Not the dessert, if you didn't get the corrected version. Continues to punish himself in the desert. I've prayed for years that he will find his burning bush. That's where the name of this lesson came from. Brother Steve, you will certainly make mistakes. We all do. Your mistakes may seem fatal. Yes, there may be a day when you fall and you do not believe you can recover. But remember this. Sometimes it is at our lowest point that we encounter God's presence and power. It is only then that most of us learn that it's not by might nor by power but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Now that's just part, that's, it's, in fact, it's part from my journals. That's the longest conversation with him I recorded. I didn't understand the dynamics of what he was telling me. And I want to tell you, I don't think I understood this probably until I was in my 40s. But this is a good way to look at Moses. Um, I'm not saying that Moses was in the wilderness out of the will of God, but I will tell you this. Oftentimes, God will speak something to us in our youth or in a bright place. And because we stumble or because we fall, and it may not even be our fault. It may be someone else's fault, or it may be the circumstances around us. But we tend to sit back and say, my moment is past. My opportunity is is past. And one of two things will happen. You will be like my brother who spent the rest of his life living with a memory of what I could have been, but I blew it. Or you will allow God to show you again your burning bush. The the burning bush was not a new revelation. It was not a new call. It was a confirmation of what God had put in his heart. From the moment he was born, his parents saw it. Now, what are the Christian life lessons? How do we wrap this up? Um, And and, and, and I want to tell you, the day my pastor died, he had as high a respect for that man as probably almost anybody else in his life. And... I know, I know that his dying wish for that brother was get out of the wilderness, come out of the desert, confront Pharaoh, and do what God called you to do. Um, Christian life lessons. Here's number one. Every step of our youth is often preparation for a future only God can see. That's a quote from Corey Ten Boom. When you read The Hiding Place, you, you are not only amazed at the suffering that she and her family went through, and you're not only concerned at how an idyllic world seemed to be lost in a matter of months, but you realize when you read the story, and, and it's three-fourths of the way through before you begin to see any light at all. But you begin to understand that God was preparing her 
through train rides from Harlem to Amsterdam with her father, uh, situations with her mom. The, the, the hiding place, the first half of the book is stories of her with her family. And when you read it, you understand God was doing something in the heart of this 48-year-old woman that she would not even begin to have a clue what was going on in her life until she was in her 50s. Every step of our youth, and she said our lives, is often preparation for a future that only God can see. Number two, we must avoid the temptation to do God's work in our own strength and wisdom alone. That's what we were talking about. Number three, after failure, we all, all of us, have a tendency to run into a life that has given up on God's best for us. I have been there. I have been so discouraged. I have been so overwhelmed by either my failure or the failure of someone else. I, I know what it's like to be so overwhelmed with disappointment that I just, I just want to run. I just want to go out into the wilderness. I want to live on a, you know, a ranch in Wyoming and, and live under the name Steve Quintley or something and just nobody know who I am. But, but I want to tell you this, uh, and, and I'm in good company. Jeremiah said, oh, that I had a place in the wilderness for wayfaring men. You know, Jeremiah was so upset, he said, I wish I could go open a, a Hampton Inn in the wilderness and just take care of travelers. I'm fed up with this, you know. Um, we all have moments like that. Every mother feels that her kids don't, uh, don't uh, appreciate her, her husband doesn't respect her, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. But those couple of times when I've, when I've struggled with that, I tell you, two things always, always become evident to me very quickly. Number one, my hurt is real. My hurt is legitimate. My complaint is legitimate. But what I have done is I have caved into self-pity. Every time you say, well, what if the pastor, I'm right. Yeah, I was right too. And, and I, I, yeah, I was right. But I was also wallowing in self-pity. Um, and, and, and I wanted people to know I was hurt and I wanted them to see my hurt so they'd feel bad that I was hurt. Um, oh, I can tell looking at you, none of you have ever been through that, but there's bound to be somebody online that's, that's fallen into that. Um, our tendency is to say, nobody's going to hurt me again. And it's because of self-pity and guys, I know self-pity is not good, but self-pity is normal. And self-pity is understandable. And I'm going to go as far as to say this. Self-pity may even serve a purpose. But let's get past it. Let's get past it. Um, the, the other thing that I've, that I've noticed is I'm always, I always, when I get that way, and I mean, I don't live there. It's not common. But every time through the years I've gotten there, not only am I in self-pity, uh, do I want, you know, I want people to know I'm hurting. Even if they didn't do it, I want them to know I'm hurting. You know how it is. Somebody hurts you and you take it out on your wife or you take it out on your husband or whatever, or the dog, you know. Um, the other thing I've noticed is that there is a default mindset that takes over and I begin to doubt in the darkness what God spoke in the light. And that is so easy to do. When everything's going good, it's easy for us to believe God's promise. But when things get tough, 
we, we, we tend to fall into the trap of not believing that God's going to keep his word, not, not believing that God's going to keep his promise. I'm going to write a constant contact for the church tomorrow, and uh, this Sunday I'm going to talk about uh, the, the message is pleading the blood of Jesus. And um, I want to talk about the hope that that brings. And then the next Sunday, I think I want to just preach about hope. But um, when I talk to people, when I talk to pastors, uh, across the board, what we are lacking more than anything else right now, and, and I'm not criticizing people for this because you can't make this thing happen, but what we're missing more than anything else in American society right now is a sense of hope is a sense of hope. Um, I read an article that said um, upwards of 45% of police will resign or go to another career within the next two or three years. And, um, it, it, but, but it's also true, I don't remember the numbers, but healthcare workers, the same thing, is because they just feel overwhelmed by what do we do with all of this. But you know what really rattled me? I've read two articles one article said between 20 and 25%. One article said between 20 and 30%. But the, the, article that, the articles that I read basically said this. They are saying that 20 to 30% of pastors, their attitude is this. I'm going to get my church through this, and then I'm out of here. And when you ask them why, some of them it's, well, I don't think our church can survive financially. Others, though, it's this, and this was the majority of response. There's no more hope in the Christian church. And they say, we know that that's not true, but that's what we're dealing with. We are in a culture that even the church says we have no sense of hope. And they say it's impossible to pastor without a sense of hope. I read that article two or three times, and um, I, I, I didn't keep it because I thought there was a lot of stuff in it that wasn't accurate, but, but it's kind of haunted me. And I began to realize that I think what we need to do um, is ask God to put hope back into our hearts again. Now, I'm, I'm telling him he could just skip a step and solve everything, you know. I'm telling him you could skip two steps and just come back tomorrow. But um, I, I don't know if he's going to listen to me or not. But loved ones, I want to tell you, I want to tell those of you that are listening online, if you are like most people in America, whether you're a Christian or, a, or an atheist, whether you are a, a type A personality or a type R personality, what most of us are fighting is that we can't find a place to latch on to hope. We can't find a place to latch on to hope. And when things go bad, we have a tendency to run into a life that has given up on God's best for us. God loves every one of us, and he's not going to abandon any of us. But the challenge for us is to come through this pandemic and to come through what's happening in America and around the world, to come through what might be happening in society and even in our own families, and let God give us a renewed sense of hope. And we'll talk over the next couple of weeks what hope is. But basically, hope is this. You know, you've got faith. We understand that. We've got love. You understand that. But hope is difficult for most Christians to understand because when we use hope, you know, it's like 
well, Cracker Barrel's open. I hope you'll take me to dinner afterwards, which means, you know, I hope you will. I don't know if you are or not, but I hope so. But the biblical word hope, we've talked about this before, is a settled conviction and certainty that a given outcome will occur though we do not understand God's method or God's timing. See, most of us are fine until God says, I'm going to tell you, this is what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to tell you how, and I'm not going to tell you when. (laughs) Doesn't that stink? Um, I want to encourage you to watch a video series. You can watch it on YouTube, and I encourage you to buy the DVD. Uh, It's called The Chosen. And it is, uh, it is the first television series about the life of Christ. They've only done eight episodes and getting ready to do a second one. But um, I, I, I remember in one of the episodes, it, it begins, I mean, it's about Jesus, but it gives you a little background. And it's Jacob trying to explain to a heathen uh, who the God is that he serves. And uh, the guy says, what's your God's name? And he says, El Shaddai. And the guy says, I've never heard of him. He said, I, not many people have, but I trust that you will. And they said, well, he said, if you don't even have a, a, a house built, you don't even have a tent erected, um, how, how do you build a, a worship center for him? And Jacob says, we don't have a worship center. He just goes with us. And the guy says, how do you know he's with you? He said, we feel him. The guy said, he's invisible? And Jacob says, yes, he's invisible. I've never seen him. Well, one time he showed up and broke my hip. But other than that, you know, and and the guy says, oh, this is great. A God who gives you promises that takes generations to fulfill. And the one time he shows up, he breaks your hip. He said, you made a bad choice, Jacob. And Jacob, with great wisdom, says, we didn't choose him. He chose us. See, hope says, I don't know when, I don't know how, but God keeps his word. What God says in the light, he remembers in the darkness. Father, um, boy, we're trying. We are, we are trying. From, from the, those of us that may have walked with you for the longest time to the newest Christians, every one of us have a challenge. Many of us are facing a challenge that's unlike anything we've ever seen. Um, so I'm asking you to help us to rise to the occasion. Help our faith and help our love, but Lord, help us to get reintroduced to the idea of hope. The idea that, uh, you know, it's like we call your return the blessed hope. That doesn't mean we hope you're coming, but we're not sure. It just means we know it's going to happen, but we don't know when and we don't know the circumstances. Lord, help us to latch on to hope somehow so that we don't have to have all the answers. Now, I want them, and I'm asking you to give us the answers, but give us a good dose of hope to go with our faith and our love so that while we're making this journey, it's joy unspeakable and full of glory. Help us to find our burning bush. In Jesus' name, amen. Justin?